Hello, my name is Guy Goodwin-Gill. I'm Professor of International Refugee Law at the University of Oxford and a Fellow of All Souls College. Today I want to talk about expulsion in public international law. In 1976, nearly 40 years ago, I published an article entitled The Limits of the Power of Expulsion in Public International Law. Just this year, at its 66th session in 2014, the International Law Commission concluded its consideration of this very topic and referred a series of draft articles for further consideration by the UN General Assembly. What did this competence look like in 1976 and how, if at all, has it developed, particularly at the level of customary international law? And here I want to leave aside for a moment the rich and important contribution made by treaty regimes in this area of state activity. An area in which states' parties must be understood, as the European Court of Human Rights has repeatedly stressed, to have agreed to restrict the free exercise of their rights under general international law, including their right to control the entry and exit of foreigners to the extent and within the limits of the obligations accepted. I want, therefore, to concentrate on customary international law. Now, the word expulsion is commonly used to describe the that exercise of state power which secures the removal of a non-national, either voluntarily under threat of forcible removal or forcibly from the territory of a state. Practice shows that while expulsion is commonly overt, it can also be achieved constructively, what the ILC calls disguised expulsion. The power to expel non-nationals is traditionally described without more as the inherent and sovereign right of every state. But until recently, little investigation had been made into the nature, function and purpose of the power, or into the manner in which its exercise is indeed controlled by public international law. General statements that the right of the expulsion must not be abused or that its exercise must not be arbitrary are hardly satisfying to the international lawyer, and by their vagueness may well encourage what they seek to restrain. First of all, international law clearly limits the state's right to exercise the power to expel to those who do not possess the citizenship of the expelling state. Moreover, a state may not manipulate its competence in order to avoid its international obligations, for example by withdrawing its nationality and making persons stateless in order to expel them. Less clear, though, are the obligations which a state may owe to those who, by reason of long residence and other factors, possess what might be called the effective nationality of the would-be expelling state, or to those, no less similarly situated, who may happen to possess a second nationality. Let me start, then, by looking a little more closely at the nature of this sovereign right. Back in 1976, I thought then, as I think now, that it helps to approach expulsion not so much in terms of a sovereign right, but rather as a discretionary competence of freedom of decision within the limits of the law. Approaching the power of expulsion as a discretionary competence has its advantages. First, it sets the limits to the power in question, that is, it says what can and what cannot be done. And secondly, it prescribes the manner of exercise of that power. Nor is this approach in any way unusual in international law. The jurisprudence of the Permanent Court of International Justice and of its successor, the International Court, 
is full of useful reminders. Whether the extent to which a state's competence in nationality matters is entitled to recognition by other states, nationality decrees in Tunis and Morocco, or the circumstances in which a state may project its enforcement jurisdiction beyond its territory, the Lotus case, or of the role of necessity as a defense to action otherwise unlawful, the oil platforms case. In these and like cases, a wide margin of appreciation may be conceded to the holder of the power in determining whether and in what circumstances to act. The power of expulsion is no exception. To that extent, the controls which international law imposes may operate only at the outermost edges of an apparently absolute competence. Nevertheless, state practice, both before the emergence of human rights treaties and since, shows that the discretionary power of expulsion is limited by, firstly, its essential function, which is the protection of the state, secondly, by the requirement of reasonable cause or sufficient justification, and thirdly, by the requirement of an acceptable manner of expulsion. This is just the beginning. It is by no means, it by no means exhausts the impact of international law. Now, international law and municipal law both recognize the existence of these limiting factors and indicate the circumstances in which an excessive exercise of the power will engage the responsibility of the state. For when a state admits foreign nationals, it is bound to extend them the protection of its law and it assumes clear obligations concerning their treatment. Those obligations are owed in the first instance to the non-national state of nationality and in appropriate cases to other competent actors on the international plane. The traditional position in international law was very well described by Judge Reed in his dissenting judgment in the Notebaum case. Dissenting, I would add, on the majority's position on admissibility, his statement of the legal situation was not disputed. He said, and I quote, as a result of the admission of an alien, whether as a permanent settler or as a visitor, a whole series of legal relationships come into being. The receiving state becomes subject to a series of legal duties vis-a-vis -vis the protecting state, particularly the duty of reasonable and fair treatment. It acquires rights vis-a-vis -vis the protecting state and the individual, particularly the rights incident to local allegiance and the right of deportation to the protecting state. At the same time, the protecting state acquires correlative rights and obligations vis-a-vis -vis the receiving state, particularly a diminution of its rights as against the individual, resulting from the local allegiance, the right to assert diplomatic protection, and the obligation to receive the individual on deportation. This network of rights and obligations, Judge Reed went on, is fundamentally conventional in its origin. It begins with the voluntary act of the protecting state in permitting the individual to take up residence in another country, and the voluntary act of admission by the receiving state. The scope and content of the rights are, however, largely defined by positive international law. Nevertheless, the receiving state has control at all stages because it can bring the situation to an end by deportation. Now, what this helps to emphasize is precisely the legal relationship between states within which expulsion operates. And as we shall see, that legal relationship today may involve other protecting bodies, particularly in the case of certain treaty regimes 
or refugee or where refugees and stateless persons are concerned. I think it's important also to spend some time considering distinctions based on nationality, particularly as those distinctions may relate to the general principle of non-discrimination. At first glance, Article 1 of the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination seems broad enough to protect against discrimination based on nationality. Yet this fine statement of principle is at once followed by an exception, providing that the Convention is not to apply to distinctions, exclusions and the like which a state party may make between citizens and non-citizens. Other contemporary Treaties contain not dissimilar provisions. Article 2.2 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights provides, and I quote, that developing countries, with due regard to human rights and their national economy, may determine to what extent they would guarantee the economic rights recognised in the present covenant to non-nationals. By contrast, Article 2.1 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights declares the obligation of states' party to respect and ensure covenant rights without distinction of any kind to all individuals within its territory and subject to its jurisdiction. This non-discrimination provision certainly seems wide enough to cover nationality, and it is reasonable to conclude that the non-national is indeed protected by a rights perimeter, at least insofar as he or she is entitled, as is everyone, to the right not to be arbitrarily deprived of life, not to be tortured, or subjected to cruel or inhuman treatment or punishment, not to be subjected to retroactive criminal penalties, and of course the right to be recognised as a person before the law. While discrimination on the ground of race is well established as a general principle of international law, the question is whether, as a standard of international law, discrimination is drawn on a wider scale. Now, as an element in many political theories of justice, of course, the principle of equality imposes upon those who wish to treat individuals differently the duty of showing cause for such differential treatment. But is this the case in international law? Expulsion is, by definition, a discriminatory measure. Simply being a non-national is thought to satisfy the first principle of expulsion. But discrimination as prohibited conduct is not merely synonymous with differential treatment. As employed in international law, the concept implies distinctions which are unfair, unjustifiable or arbitrary. And it is apparent that both the practice of states and particular treaty regimes anticipate continued distinctions between the citizen and the non-citizen. The basic rights of the non-national may be assured, but other rights and interests can be restricted. Dissenting in the Southwest Africa case, Judge Tanaka observed that the concept of equality before the law and equal protection of the law was indeed a feature of many constitutions. There is indeed some evidence of the acceptance of equality as a general principle of law, and in fact many states do guarantee fundamental rights without distinction between citizens and non-citizens. Nevertheless, at the same time, in practice, we can see that the state's duty to admit individuals to its territory is generally limited to its nationals, and it is widely accepted that the non-citizen may be barred from the exercise of political rights, the ownership of certain property, and the holding of public office. 
state practice supports the lawfulness of such distinctions. And here international law accepts that not being a national is, in the circumstances, a relevant difference justifying differential treatment. With these first considerations in mind, let me now turn to look more closely at the function of expulsion. When we look at how states themselves characterize the power of expulsion, we find them explaining that its function is the protection of the state, the preservation of what is sometimes described as ordre public. From this, one can infer that to be lawful, an exercise of the power to expel must be related to these purposes, and that therefore an expulsion which is not executed in good faith may well be a breach of the obligations of the acting state. Here we can set out some first propositions. First of all, states have the right or power or competence to expel non-nationals from their territory. Secondly, this discretionary competence is confined by reference to its function and purpose. And thirdly, function and purpose require that the power be exercised in good faith and not for some ulterior motive. Now this formulation raises an important issue. Whether, if the intention behind it is to do harm, the exercise of the power to expel becomes unlawful. Suppose, for example, that the non-national is expelled in order to effect a de facto extradition, or to expropriate his or her property, or even for the purposes of genocide. What then is the situation in international law? Unfortunately, the International Court of Justice never got to the merits of the Notebohm case. Had it done so, we would have had to take note of the fact that more than 100 different proceedings were subsequently initiated in order to deprive Notebohm of his property interests. The court would then have had to relate this factor to the expelling state's underlying intentions. In turn, the court would have had to go on to consider Guatemala's argument that its decision to refuse readmission had been taken, and I quote from the French, had been taken dans l'exercice de sa compétence essentiellement nationale, dont il ne, se, il ne doit rendre compte à personne. Dans l'état actuel du droit, l'admission ou le refus d'admission d'étrangers échappe à toute limitation ou réglementation internationale et par suite à tout contrôle extérieur. Loosely translated, Guatemala argued that its decision to refuse readmission had been taken in the exercise of its essential national competence for which it was not bound to respond or to account to anyone. It went on, said Guatemala, to say, in the actual state, in the present state of international law, the admission or the refusal of admission of a foreigner escapes all limitation or control by international law and therefore escapes all regulation by any external power. The court, however, did not consider this argument, and thus it is for customary international law to begin to provide the answers. Is there, in fact, a protected area within this discretionary competence to expel to which international law is denied entry? Are security concerns and the very characterization of issues as matters of security entirely within the reserved domain of domestic jurisdiction? Certainly one can cite instances, for example in the 1970s, when few, if any, states were prepared to join in protests against expulsions manifestly based on race, 
but where the expelling state had justified its actions by spurious appeals to security, economic, and other. The essential function of expulsion is nonetheless worth recalling as a potential indicator of conduct potentially giving rise to the responsibility of the state. And when they have chosen to protest the expulsion of their citizens, this is precisely where states have focused their criticism. From considering the function of expulsion, let me now turn to consider the justification or reasons for expulsion which appear in the practice of states. And here, when it comes to reasons, a considerable margin of appreciation is left to states in deciding on the content of sc and scope of what I will loosely call ordre public as a shorthand description of the grounds which may be invoked to justify expulsion. But that margin of appreciation has its own limits. The first requirement of international law is that the non-national may only be expelled in pursuance of a decision reached in accordance with the law, to quote the terms of Article 13 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Although framed by reference to the individual lawfully in the territory of a state party, a decision in accordance with the law reflects a principle, I would suggest, of general application, as the International Court of Justice has recently affirmed in the Diallo case. In principle, then, the expelling state is required to balance its own interests against those of the individual, to take account of the non-nationals' acquired rights or legitimate expectations, and to arrive at a, decision, at a decision which bears a reasonable relationship to the facts. As Oppenheim once observed, an expelling state will hardly admit to not having just cause, but, and I quote, the borderline between discretion and arbitrariness, although elastic, is a real one. And in a case of doubt, it is for an impartial organ to determine whether it has been overstepped. And in practice, on behalf of their nationals and in statements and international forums, states frequently endorse the requirement of reasonable cause. But how far does this go? Is there, as it were, an international content to the notion of ordre public? In the guardianship of infants case, Judge Lauterpach certainly thought there was, though admittedly in a slightly different context. State practice, when it comes to intervening or not intervening, where a citizen is expelled from another state, has commonly understood the distinction between the right to expel on the one hand and the rightful exercise of that power on the other. So they have indeed protested when the expelling state has sought to justify its action on the basis of reserved political motives which cannot be revealed, to quote from an early tribunal decision, or when expulsion has resulted from executive action alone without conviction by a court or other involvement of a tribunal, or when the expelling state has based its actions on vague and indefinite charges or mere assertions that public order was engaged. States seem to agree that judicial inquiry in these circumstances, with its basis in principle in formal investigation on the proof of facts, is a surer guard against abuse than the free exercise by governments of a power of expulsion based on vague and indefinite allegations. In practice, however, we need to admit that the process does tend to be loaded in favour of the state, which, <coughs> where matters of ordre public are concerned, 
may well be in the best position to judge what is required in the circumstances. Now, if we look comparatively at what states do and how they construct their immigration laws, we find that municipal legal systems adopt very similar approaches to defining the grounds for expulsion, due allowance being made for differences in terminology. These can be summarized as follows. Firstly, expulsion may be justified locally under the law where entry has been in violation of local law, of local immigration law. It may be justified where the individual has violated the conditions of his or her entry, for example, by working without a permit. It may be justified where the individual becomes a public charge, for example, where he or she lives off social security, or becomes involved in criminal activities, or becomes involved in undesirable political activities, or activities deemed to threaten national security. Equally, municipal systems rarely make expulsion mandatory, save in a few exceptional circumstances, perhaps, such as conviction for particularly serious crimes. The decision whether to expel or not remains within the realm of discretion. And here it is that the competent authority will, in practice, and ideally, balance the interests of the state against those of the individual. Here, account may be taken of the nature, the duration, the extent of the non-national's connection with the state, including his or her family links, perhaps even something in the way of an acquired right to residence, although this notion has not fared well in arbitral practice. Still, it has to be admitted that the non-national who is expelled does suffer a punishment distinctive by reason of his or her alienage, and the longer the non-national has been resident, the greater will be the hardship, the greater, therefore, the need for independent and impartial adjudication of the competing interests. Not surprisingly, expulsion cases which most often resist the application of international legal standards and indeed very often of national legal standards are those in which the security and political interests of the expelling state are involved. These cases, it has been said, by their very nature require political judgments to be made as to what does or does not constitute a threat to the security of the state, or what amounts to undesirable political activity. A number of states take the position that appeals in such cases are not required as a matter of international legal obligation. Other states have from time to time introduced limited appeals, as the United Kingdom did, where deportation was deemed conducive to the public good or as being in the interests of national security or the relations between the UK and any other country. But experience shows that such attempts at limited due process involving special advocates, closed or partially closed hearings and so forth, are often unsatisfactory for all parties. Let me come to some conclusions at this stage on justification and the reasons for expulsion. First of all, justification for expulsion is demanded as a matter of international law by reason of the function and purpose of the power and, of course, the requirement of good faith. Secondly, state practice accepts that a expulsion may be justified for entry in breach of the law, for breach of the conditions of admission, for involvement in criminal activities <clears throat> in the light of political and security considerations. Thirdly, in determining whether its interests are adversely affected by the continuing presence of the non-national 
or whether there is a threat to or republic, the expelling state enjoys under international law a fairly wide margin of appreciation. But fourthly, ordre public remains a general legal conception, the content of which is determined by law. And whether or not reasons of ordre public exist is open to impartial adjudication in the light of the prescribed function of expulsion and of the international obligations of the state. The principle of good faith and the requirement of justification or reasonable cause demand in turn that consideration be given to the interests of the individual, including his or her basic human rights, including matters of family, property, and other connections with the state of residence and his or her legitimate expectations. These must be weighed against the competing interests of the state, the claims of order public. <coughs> now let me come from considering the function of expulsion, looking at the justification and reasons for expulsion, to consider the manner and form of expulsion starting with the idea of a right to a hearing. In practice, many states do permit some form of review of, if not appeal against, expulsion orders. But it has not been found easy to apply the concept, the international legal concept of denial of justice in this area. Arbitrators and others have never really satisfactorily resolved the dichotomy between due process and what they have characterized as sovereign powers, forgetting very often the alternative, in my view, much better approach, which is to see expulsion as a discretionary competence. Nonetheless, Article 13 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights provides that except where compelling reasons of national security otherwise require, the non-national lawfully within the state shall be allowed to submit reasons against expulsion and to have his or her case reviewed by the competent authority. Although many states do make provision for some sort of hearing, it is probably doubtful whether Article 13 can be regarded as entirely expressive of Lex Lata. The requirement is commonly subject to wide exceptions, and there are few restrictions, it appears, on the quality or character of the competent authority. By contrast, the decision to expel must be in accordance with the law, and this reflects it appears to me a fundamental principle of legality. Judicial review in the various forms it takes across different jurisdictions. Judicial review generally does not intrude upon the policy side of decision making, but it does influence and structure the exercise of power by requiring it to conform with certain minimum conditions of fairness and by controlling abuse. Judicial review, that's to say the review of legality, defines, as it were, the, the outer fringes of the power and represents the substance of that requirement of international law that decisions be in accordance with and controlled by the law. Is a hearing a matter of international obligation? It does seem to me that this very requirement that a decision be in accordance with the law requires review of legality as a minimum. Beyond that, admittedly, state practice reflects considerable variety, and the International Law Commission's draft articles attempt to give greater substantive content to the non-national's procedural entitlements than many municipal systems presently recognize progressive development.
Still thinking about the manner and form of expulsion necessarily raises questions like detention and the issue of conditions of expulsion. And over many years, more than a century, state practice <coughs> has long upheld the prohibition of unnecessary force in implementing expulsion, the prohibition of cruelty and other indignities imposed on those subject to expulsion. Today, of course, general international law requires that the non-nationals' basic human rights be protected, while developing practice is indeed beginning to condition the circumstances of detention as the International Law Commission observes. Whether or not the non-national who is the subject of unlawful expulsion and the notion does exist in international law, with all its implications for the responsibility of the state, whether the non-national who is the subject of unlawful expulsion is entitled to readmission remains contested, however. Although, again, the International Law Commission here makes some very sensible proposals which take account of the interests of states. Let me then draw some conclusions on the manner and form of expulsion. Firstly, general international law imposes as a precondition to the validity of an order of expulsion the requirement that it be made in accordance with law. An order of expulsion will only be in accordance with law if, firstly, it is permitted by the local law and either the non-national is allowed a hearing and appeal on the merits or there exists an effective remedy, judicial review, whereby the legality of the exercise of power can be challenged. Next, expulsion proceedings generally must be carried out in accordance with the general standards which international law has established for the treatment of non-nationals. There must be no ill treatment or torture and due regard must be paid to the dignity of the individual and to his or her basic rights as a human being. International responsibility, finally, attaches to the expelling state which acts in breach of its international obligations, and compensation may be demanded by the state of which the individual is a national. Although readmission can be demanded, and is sometimes demanded, state practice so far does not support the existence of an obligation in the matter. The payment of damages and the making of an apology have often been considered sufficient, although here again the law may be on the point of change. In summary then, what are the limits to the power of expulsion in public international law? Practice even in the 1970s was by no means silent on the limits within which the power of expulsion was to be exercised if it were to be regarded as lawful. For it is a power, as I've sought to stress, which is essentially discretionary, and international law operates to prescribe the extent of the power and to regulate the manner of its exercise. Forty years later, it's possible to go farther now in the description of those limits than the somewhat generalized conclusions most usually found, for example, to the effect that the power of expulsion must not be exercised arbitrarily or unfairly or unjustly or without consideration. It remains essential that any description of the power of expulsion in practice should take account of the legal context in which it finds its meaning. Expulsion serves as a measure to terminate the relationship of reciprocal rights and duties which is established between receiving and protecting states by reason of the admission or presence of foreign nationals on the territory of the former. In the case of refugees and stateless persons, it is also subject to the relationship between the expelling state and the international organization competent to exercise protection. But if in terminating that relationship, 
any of the obligations which it owes are violated by the expelling state, then international responsibility is invoked and a new set of legal relationships is established. It may also, in reviewing the overall situation, be necessary now to take account of those obligations owed ergo omnes, or which may be owed to another subject of international law, such as the principle of non-discrimination, the duty to ensure and respect basic human rights, and the principle of non-refoulement. In short, therefore, the function of expulsion is to protect the essential interests of the state. From its function, it follows that the power of expulsion must not be abused. If its aim and purpose are to be fulfilled, the power must be exercised in good faith and not for some ulterior motive, such as genocide, confiscation of property, the surrender of an individual to persecution, and so forth. The function of expulsion, together with the requirement of good faith, involves a subsidiary point that expulsion requires justification. The expelling state must show reasonable cause, although in determining whether its interests are adversely affected or whether there is a threat to its national security, international law allows that state a fairly wide margin of appreciation. More generally, however, the notion of ordre public is a legal conception, the content of which is determined by law. The principle of good faith and the requirement of justification demand that due consideration be given to the interests of the individual, including, of course, his or her basic human rights, personal interests, family and other connections with the state of residence, property and legitimate expectations. These, as state practice shows, are to be weighed against the competing demands of ordre public. General international law imposes as a precondition to the validity of an order of expulsion the requirement that it be made in accordance with law. And this rule entails the further requirement that there should be available an effective remedy whereby an unlawful exercise of discretion may be challenged. Finally, the expulsion itself must be carried out in accordance with the general standards which international law has established for the treatment of non-nationals. Due regard must, therefore, be paid to the dignity of the individual and to his or her basic human rights. Each of these propositions indicates significant limitations on the discretionary power to expel non-nationals. Considered in summary form as I have done, these limitations and the standards which they propose may well appear too general. However, the manner of their more precise application is increasingly apparent in the practice and jurisprudence of national, regional and international tribunals. However, even to this day, self-interest can predominate even where international law is clearly breached. Here, state practice indicates a possibly equivocal attitude to the exercise of power by others, which may be some evidence of a claim to near absolute discretion, at least in political or security matters. The power of expulsion is a sovereign right in that it pertains to every state for that state's protection. But it is a power which is controlled and limited both by treaty obligations and by obligations deriving from customary international law. Let me conclude by looking at the most recent work of the International Law Commission, particularly in today's context. Clearly, the securitization of migration and of refugee and forced migration over the past two decades has had a major impact 
on states' perceptions of their international obligations towards non-nationals considered against their own interests. On the one hand, the principle of non-refoulement has been consolidated and extended in the practice of states, though with some equivocation on the personal scope of its application and a continuing measure of uncertainty for what comes next. The principle that a decision to expel must be in accordance with the law is clearly accepted as required by international law, even if again municipal law retains its primacy in delineating the relevant grounds. A measure of due process is also called for, often characterised by regional variations driven positively by particular treaty regimes, but with independent review of legality as the very minimum requirement. The humane treatment of those liable to expulsion, account being taken of basic human rights, is likewise indisputable as a matter of obligation, although again the detail may vary even as the core of protection remains solid. On the other hand, the power to expel is claimed still to be essential to the protection of the state and its population. But it is understood now in ways which prioritise state interests over those of the individual or tend to do so, to the point that otherwise long-established requirements such as objective justification may be dispensed with or sidelined by reasons of state. Reading government comments on the International Law Commission's draft articles adopted on first reading in 2012 is both illuminating, so that's what they think, and somewhat disheartening from a progressive development perspective, so that's what they really think. There is no time here and now to do full justice to the work of the ILC on expulsion. The special rapporteur, Mr Maurice Campteau, produced some nine reports which were considered at length. 36 states, joined by the European Union, spoke on the issue in the Sixth Committee in 2012, 11 of which, together again with the European Union and one other state, responded in writing to the Secretary-General's invitation to comment on that first draft set of 32 articles. In 2014, the International Law Commission decided to recommend to the General Assembly that it take note of the now 31 draft articles, that it annex them to a resolution, encourage their widest possible dissemination and consider at a later stage the elaboration of a convention on the basis of the draft. This is important work, though I have a general caveat. In my opinion, it is highly regrettable that the International Law Commission has given credence to the use of one word which, in the English-speaking world with very few exceptions, is now seen as outdated and to be avoided. The word is alien, a term which, though historically common, is not only inaccurate at base, but also often used in practice with pejorative and prejudicial intent. It is loaded with negative meaning, unlike étranger in French, the stranger, or Ausländer in German, one from abroad. The non-citizen is not an alien in any true sense, but he or she is one of us, a member of the human race, entitled no less to the protection of his or her human rights. When writing about expulsion in the 1970s, I too used the term, but at that time my writing was also characterised by gender-specific language. I would like to think, as an international lawyer, that I and my discipline have overcome both these hang-ups. In his ninth report, the Special Rapporteur noted that the language issue had indeed been raised, but that it had not given rise to much debate and had never gained traction. Still, in my view, it is unfortunate that the International Law Commission, 
a member body of the United Nations and bound also, therefore, to the purpose of promoting and encouraging respect for human rights and for fundamental freedoms for all without distinction, did not itself provide leadership here, but settled instead for giving its imprimatur to this primitive terminology. For language is important. It conditions and channels thought and action and often encourages resistance to principle development. As happened during negotiations over the text of the 1985 UN Declaration on the Human Rights of Individuals who are not nationals of the country in which they live, and in negotiations over the 1990 Convention for the Protection of the Rights of All Migrant Workers and Members of Their Families, many of the so-called migrant receiving countries in the developed world appear to be in the vanguard of that opposition opposition to recognizing the limits of the power of expulsion in international law. On the evidence of the rather few comments by governments on the ILC's draft articles, it is clear that many remain attached to the terminology of alienage. Far from finding it objectionable, many seem to take to it with relish, as if the word alone by heightening alienation and by dehumanizing the non-citizen was sufficient of itself to justify discrimination and whatever treatment or process the state might elect to apply in the plenitude of its sovereign power. This is commonly reflected in a reactive tendency to see international law and obligation almost exclusively through the lens of local law, actual or proposed, rather than against the long history of state practice or the background of principle. In his ninth report, the Special Rapporteur responded robustly to many of these comments. He recalled the International Law Commission's mandate, which is both codification and progressive development. And he regretted that many of the statements, and I quote, were aimed mainly at maintaining national priorities or normative preferences without considering the state of or major trends in international law. He soundly rejected facile distinctions between those lawfully and those unlawfully present, called attention to significant judicial approaches such as that of the International Court of Justice in the Diallo case. And while giving due regard to the interests of states, he stood firm on issues of detention, family life, non-refoulement, procedural rights, collective expulsion, disguised expulsion, readmittance, and non-discrimination. In a variety of different contexts, the International Court of Justice has not hesitated to recall the elementary considerations of humanity or the principles and rules concerning the basic rights of the human person, or intransgressible principles of international customary law, or the necessity in appropriate circumstances to avoid irreparable prejudice. These underlying fundamental conceptions are no less capable of application in the context of expulsion and to the wide range of issues which arise when this discretionary competence is exercised. These draft articles undoubtedly have an interesting future. Une affaire à suivre. Thank you.